I'm excited to speak to the man. Well, thank you. Thank you. Just remember, Curtis lies a lot, so. Hi, and welcome to Backup Central's Restore It All podcast. I'm your host, W. Curtis Preston, a.k.a. Mr. Backup, and I have with me Prasanna. Prasanna, 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 Prasanna. Maliandi. How's it going, Prasanna? <laughs> <laughs> I'm good, Curtis. I like that intro. It's kind of like the fade away. And... I, I, I could introduce you. Let's see. What, 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 what have I been working on this week? There was something else that I was working on that you ended up knowing once again knowing a bunch of stuff about i know that there was some project that i was working on this week that there is no earthly reason that you should know anything about this area of specialty and you and in the in the midst of that discussion you said something like well make sure you know make sure you get the dumaflachi on the whatchamacallit and i'm like how do you know that and you you know you just said i you know once again it's you're full of ridiculous levels of specialty in various places. Does that sound about right? Yeah, that sounds about right. I'm trying to recall, too, what we had talked about. And yeah, I don't remember off the top of my head. But uh, today, we're going to talk about something that I don't think you know anything about. (laughs) No, I don't think so. Or I know a little based on on what you... Yeah, you, you, all your, you have secondhand smoke, you know, you have, you have secondhand <laughs> knowledge about, about this topic. We, we have, uh, yet again, uh, somebody who I, I'm, I'm, I'm super excited to have on the podcast, uh, that I, I've known him for a long time. And he is a person that, uh, I would describe, he taught me so much about, basically how tape actually works, right? I, I knew it from a practical standpoint because I used it in the field, uh, but it, it wasn't until I talked to our, our guest today that he, he really helped me uh, understand literally the, the, the physics. And I learned things from him, like we're going to talk about a formula, KUV, KUV over KT. We'll talk about that. And um uh, it wasn't until I talked to him that I, I actually understood perhaps the reasonings behind all of this. He has been, uh, you know, behind the scenes in the tape industry for longer than we'll talk about. Uh, and then he, he is now uh, semi-retired. He ha- is the uh, owner and chief engineer of an audio recording company uh, called Applied Engineering Science. Welcome to the podcast, Joe Jernicky. Curtis, thank you for such a kind intro. That was just beautiful. It's uh, it's great to be here, and Prasanna, it's nice to meet you as well. Nice to meet you too, Joe. I'm excited. Curtis has talked so much about you, so I'm excited to speak to the man. Well, thank you. Thank you. Just remember, Curtis lies a lot, so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> never, 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 never been proven. Let's talk, let's just give us a, a little bit of a background because you were, you were like deep in the trenches of, of tape design back in the day. Why don't you give us a, a little bit of taste of the kinds of things that you used to do? Uh, well, Curtis, I started in disk drives 
in uh, 1973. I worked on disc from uh, 73 to uh, approximately 1985, and uh, that was at Storage Tech in Louisville, Colorado. And we shipped a bunch of different uh, disc systems, the 8800, 8100, the 8350, the Nemesis 8650, 8370, 75, and 80, at which point I got tired of disc. <laughs> Everything was round, brown, and very heavy. And uh, in 1985, I uh, jumped out of uh, a disc and went into tape. Uh, and started working on uh, 4480, which was Storage Tech's version of the IBM uh, 3480, their uh, their first 18-track drive. Uh, so I was in tape from 85 till 99 when I left Storage Tech. And during that period of time, we worked on the... Uh, uh, the 4480, the 4490, Timberline, uh, Silverton, Redwood, another nemesis, uh, and then uh, the first uh, 9840 generation. So uh, I spent about 14 years in tape before I, uh, I left to uh, go into the consulting business. And I consulted off and on in the tape business from 99 up until uh, uh, just a couple of years ago. During that period of time, we generated about 11 patents in, uh, in signal processing for uh, data storage devices. Uh, helped a lot of clients solve really icky technical problems. That's a technical term, by the way, the icky te- <laughs> technical stuff. Um, and, uh, and then help people uh, work yeah. on bringing uh, Bringing strategies to uh, to make sense in their in their business lines. So, 1985, the year that you were switching over from disc to tape was the year I was switching from high school to college. Just for the record. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, some of us are just older than others. <laughs> and then, um, yeah, and then let's see, and then 99, the 99 was the year I was writing. Uh, the 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 first of the of the backup books, which um, I should mention, the the new book, the latest book, uh, Modern Data Protection from O'Reilly, is now out. For those of you that are uh, interested in uh, getting a copy, the um, it, it it covers it, it's the book I've been wanting to write for a long time, and is it's basically. Those of you, if you're familiar with my my last couple of books, which you know about backup and recovery, those books were aimed at people who have no money, right? They were aimed at you know basically they were aimed at me 25 years ago, where I was at a bank, we had money for tape drives, but no money for software, and so those books focused on um, uh, open source or free native tools that you could use to back up, almost always to tape, and then. Um, this book basically picks up where those books left off. So basically the, the, the title of, uh, or the subtitle of this book could be, so you have some money you're going to spend on backups. Let's talk about what to do with it. Right. So it talks about all of the things that, uh, first we talk about all of the things that you need to back up, why you need to back up those things, then all of the things that you could back up to one of which is tape. 
Uh, and then we talk about the difference between backup and archive. And then we talk about all of the different things, methods that you can use to back up and product types that you can use to back up. And we also cover disaster recovery mm -hmm. and uh, all and of that in a neat and do they, is there little 300 discount code and it's available now. Uh, and if you'd like, uh, I did arrange for a pod uh, for a discount. Um, yeah, I did arrange for a discount. Um, of 35% for listeners of the podcast. So if you uh, go to the show description, you'll see a link uh, to use uh, this uh, code. It is MDP35. So M, you know, modern data protection, MDP35. Use that code at the link that you'll find in the show description and you can get 35% of the book <laughs> that is just now in print. So uh, with that, I'll get my book plug out of the way. So, um, and um Something's got to pay for my, you know, my house. Anyway, yeah. And oh, yeah. Also, disclaimer, uh, Persona, Persona and I do both work for Druva. This is not a Druva podcast. The opinions that you hear are ours. So, uh, Joe, you, you, you've seen me talk or, or write or whatever, and you and I have talked before that I, I am both a fan of tape and at the same time, I have stopped recommending tape as a primary target for backups, uh, you know, for the last, I don't know, at least 10 years. And this had to do with, um, you know, with the speed mismatch problem, but we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. One of the things I wanted to talk about, one of the things that have always, a phrase that I've said that I, I, I think is, is backed up by science and <laughs> Maybe it's not. And, and maybe you can help me with this here. One of the reasons for what for what we call the tape speed mismatch problem is this requirement that the recording medium needs to go across the recording head at some relatively high rate of speed in order to get uh, a good signal to noise ratio. Do, can do you have any idea why that's the case? Oh, yeah. <clears throat> and uh, let, let's see if I can't uh, articulate what's yeah. really going on here. Um, ever since 1985, uh, the, the tape industry has used magnetoresistive reed heads. Prior to that, it used inductive reed heads and inductive right heads. Now, with uh, inductive heads, uh, the output voltage, and hence the signal-to-noise ratio when you take into account the preamps, is directly proportional to velocity. The higher the velocity, the better the signal. Since 1985, with the advent of MR heads, hmm. that's no longer true. The uh, signal-to-noise ratio is at good at 1 inch a second as it is at 100 inches a second. But the real problem with tape is uh, the buffer size is only so large, and matching the speed of the drive to the host is the real challenge. Uh, and so the, uh, what happens in modern-day devices is they don't do a good job of speed matching the device to the channel. There's no reason you can't. You certainly could. It's an architecture that's uh, well understood. And in fact, some people have actually implemented uh, good speed matching strategies, but they're just not in use today. Uh, so that basically what they do is they max out uh, the design for a specific transfer rate and a specific server design 
to yield the maximum output that you can get from the device. And then you end up with the device having to stop and reposition and uh, and then start up again every time that the channel can't keep up with the device itself. So the speed matching problem is really a, an architecture problem that's actually fairly simple to solve. They just They just haven't implemented it in modern day devices. The last device that I believe had that. I was just going to ask if you can kind of just a couple of quick questions. If you could talk a little bit about sort of how writes happen to tape, what a channel is, um, just some of the, a little bit about the basics, just for uh, our listeners who may not be as familiar and also myself. <laughs> oh, sure. Glad to do that. Uh, did I, did I, did I bore you enough with, uh, with the speed match? No, no, no. I, I find that fascinating, but I think just sort of a basic primer might be good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, it's, it's, <laughs> no, we're not bored. Yeah, we're, yeah. Uh, Yeah, uh, so a a given tape drive today has anywhere from 18 to 36 parallel channels that it records data on. And so a a data line from the host that's uh, been received is then broken apart into 36 individual tracks uh, and then for lack of a better term, I'll call it multiplexed, so that that data is spread out both down tape and across tape in order to make it uh, error-proof. And then they put error correction on top of it to protect it even farther. Uh, So yeah, there's, you know, there's a, so you have one pipe coming in, you have 36 pipes going out to tape. And then when you're reading it back, you got the 36 pipes that come back from tape Hmm. That goes back through the demultiplexer and the error corrector and then stuffed on one pipe that goes back out to the host. Did that uh, answer your yeah. question, Prasanna? Tell us what role the buffer plays, so, besides the obvious answer. So typically what happens is with the error correction, you have to build up an image of these tracks. And uh, uh, so you take the input data from the host, you split it up, you put it into this buffer, and you figure out how to build the matrix out of that that you're actually going to write to tape. Then you put all the header information in it. You put the error correction on it. And then at the, at the, uh, uh, once that's all done, then you write it out to the tape volume itself. And then when you read it back, you take that data, put it back into the buffer, deconstruct all the stuff you've done to it, and then put it back out to the host. So couldn't they just build a bigger buffer if they wanted to increase performance? Yeah, so the question about the buffer size, uh, you can. I mean, buffers are not that expensive anymore. Uh, the problem relies in the fact that if you you have a let's say a gigabit a second tape drive and you got a uh, hundred megabit a second uh, host attached to it, um, you're going to fill that buffer really quick when you're reading. So then the device still has to stop while you're dumping that data out to the host, then fill up again. Uh, so you got to do the reposition uh, on tape, come back up to speed, read the uh, read the tape, put it back into the buffer, and so on and so forth. So you know the the modern high speed architectures are a little uh, they're not very conducive to low speed channels. They love high speed channels uh, and mainframes and uh, and servers that can keep up with their with their transfer rates. Otherwise, it becomes a 
uh, a big game of just playing a big football on tape. You read a little bit, you stop, reposition, and you read a little bit more, and you stop and you reposition. So it's like playing football. You go down tape 10 yards, you, and then you have to reposition. You go down another 10 yards and get repositioned, and so on and so forth, as opposed to just streaming it from one end to the other. I want to go back to something you said earlier. Uh, and, and by the way, this is why I'm glad you're here, because I guess I've been operating under a misconception that I thought that this problem was caused by a requirement of the tape to go a certain speed, which you said used to be a requirement, but that got addressed with switching to the type of recording heads that we, that we started, that we switched to in 1985, which is before I ever came to the data industry. Uh, so, so, so let me just make sure I, I heard you correctly, which you're saying that, uh, I, I think what I heard you say was that they could address this, you know, it's totally possible, but instead they've decided to optimize for high speed, rights and to basically ignore this the slower speed rights does that sound right that 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 that's pretty much it uh basically what they've done is they've uh they've designed their devices to fill the fastest channel that's available um and then did not put the uh, architectural hooks in to be able to match to lower speed hosts that used to exist. I mean, uh, Certains, I believe, had an LTO, was it LTO 4? 3 or 4, I think, that had a mad speed matching buffer, and it worked really, really well. My understanding is some some, some modern tape drives do have the speed matching, by the way. Um, it, it's, just that, it's just that even with the speed matching, it, even the lowest speed is still, um, is still quite high when you're talking about an incremental backup, right? And by the way, you 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 used a gigabit as a, a second as an example. The thing is, we're now at a gigabyte a second, you know, in terms of currently shipping tape drives, which is a, a long way from a gigabit a second. So even if they they slow down, they slow down to maybe, um, you know, like say fifty megabytes per second is as slow as a as a modern tape drive goes. And 50 megabytes a second is still way faster than a typical incremental backup. Exactly. Now, the reason I did that, uh, Curtis, was I do have some NDAs that are still active. And so there's things I can't uh, necessarily disclose. So I threw in uh, arbitrary numbers for uh, comparison purposes. I apologize for that. I should have told you that up front. Oh, hey, no problem. (laughs) By the way, nobody's listening to this podcast, Joe. So, you know, you could say right could now say as it's being recorded. Yes. <laughs> Somehow I have a hard time believing that. So <laughs> <laughs> no one will ever know. I know we covered the speed matching. So does that mean then that tape drives are always going to like even getting faster and faster tape drives doesn't help anyone? That's absolutely correct. Like, I understand that there's a a matter of matching the tape drive. And I know, Curtis, you always talk about match the tape drive to your environment. Just adding more tape drives isn't going to help or adding faster tape drives. So is the problem really just do the proper sizing for your environment? 
Yeah, you know, I, I think in today's environment, tape doesn't it does not make sense in a backup environment. I agree with Curtis on that. What makes more sense is to back up to a well-supported disk, and then let the disk stream off the tape for your uh, for an offsite backup. You know, if you're trying to do incremental backups to tape, uh, my God, you'd be there for a year. You know, uh, and in reality, uh, you know. It's just—it's not a backup tool anymore. It's—it's—it's it's, it's a deep archive tool more than it is a, a backup tool. I think Curtis might disagree with that. Uh, you know, he's the—he's the guru in backup here. No, I completely agree with you, Joe. Um, and I—I I guess the—the the only part here where I'm surprised is that I—I I guess I was—I was just. Um, I guess I was being too nice on the companies that were designing tape. Uh, and basically what, I, what I'm hearing you say is they could solve it, but they're not. And I guess the only question, and you know, maybe you can't answer because NDA, but I, I will theorize that it, it, is it possible that I, I could create a, an LTO, you know, 9.5 and it could go five megabytes per second, but it would then increase the cost of the drive to the point that it would become economically infeasible to do that? Is that, is that one of the reasons? Not really. Um, the, um, if you look at a modern drive today, uh, they use what's called partial response signaling. Uh, and basically what that means uh, to, the, to the average user is there's a lot of channel, this is a signal processing channel complexity, not, not the host channel that has to be uh, in, uh, incurred for getting good reliability on data. Uh, and as a result, um, you have a lot of coefficients that have to be tuned uh, for any speed change that, that takes place. Uh, so let's just say you decide you're going to have 10 different uh, speeds you're going to have your drive operating at. That means you're going to have 10 different sets of coefficients you'll have to load every time you change speed. So um, it's just registers, it's memory, and then it's uh, control over the adaptive algorithm that does that work. Uh, does it change the cost of the drive in terms of physical hardware? No. Does it increase the development time a little bit? Yes. And so from that time. point of view, yeah, it'll be a little more expensive. And, and testing time, because you have to test all of those corner cases. That's right. Uh, uh, but in terms of the drive itself, no, you're really not adding any physical cost to the drive. So then why don't they do this? Why don't they make a drive that can go fast and also go really slow? That's a good question. And I think, you know, if you look at uh, how a lot of these companies are positioned, they're no longer positioned as backup companies. They're more or less positioned as deep archive companies. Uh, and so they're, they're optimizing their drives for taking data off of disk as fast as they can um, and not looking at the requirements for incremental backup anymore. Yeah, just a different space they're playing in. I think they were talking, 
Yeah, I think they were talking about tape is still a really large market, right? It's something like a billion dollars a year. So it's not like it's dead, right? It's still a pretty large market. It's multiple billions of dollars a year. Yeah. And and more tape is sold today than last year. And more tape was sold last year than the year before, right? <laughs> well, I don't know about last year. Last year, who knows? Who knows what the hell happened last year? <laughs> nothing happened last year. Nobody bought anything. There was nothing to back up. But basically, tape has continued to grow. Yeah, there was nothing to back up. The um, the, um, the the tape market has continued to grow um, because of Joe's point that they have basically repositioned themselves or rebranded themselves or whatever you want to say to be a deep archive uh, device rather than a backup device. Um, the I, I guess I am I am a little fascinated by the fact that they they could have maybe addressed this better. And by the way, to go persona to go to your earlier question to me the the way to do this correctly um is to a understand the device that you're purchasing right that that, that's step number one because most people had no idea right that the, the the speed mismatch problem so understand that that is an issue understand the speeds at which that device can operate without tons of back hitching and repositioning, right? This idea of, I call it back hitching. Um, Joe used the term repositioning. It's the same thing. It's, it, it, you know, you're in football. Uh, what, football. what analogy did he use? Uh, what was it? It was, uh, oh, it's like going football. Yeah. I, I, I yeah. I, I like to use the analogy of, of a car, right? Um, that, that it, it, the way a, a tape drive currently works is it, it'd be like if you had a car and you're going to the mall, which is, you know, five miles away. And every five seconds, you're going to put your car in reverse for a couple of seconds and then go back to drive and then go a few feet and then go back in reverse. And then you wonder why your transmission falls out by the time you get to the mall. Right. Um, that's the analogy I like to use, because that's basically what tapes do is they go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth because they can only ride at these certain speeds. So, so my thing is. Just number one, understand the device that you purchase and understand what it's capable of. You can't just magically, you can't send a backup stream that's running at five megabytes per second to a tape drive whose slowest speed is 50 megabytes per second and expect it to operate reliably. You just, you just can't do that. And that's what, that was what I spent two decades going around explaining to people the laws of physics right? Of saying, listen, you have a device that is a streaming device that wants to run at, you know, X, Y, Z speed. And you're currently offering it something that, that is an order of magnitude less than that. And you're wondering why things aren't working. Right. Um, because it's spending all of its time going. I was just going to, I was just going to say, I think Curtis, you brought up an example at one point, right. Talking about a client you had worked with who basically had a many drives and you basically went and said, reduce the number of drives. It'll go faster. Right. Yeah. 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 The, the, it was a large entertainment company and they had, uh, like, I forgot how many it was. I think it was. They had like 16, by the way, Joe, they were, they were 9840s. That was it. That was, yeah. That, okay. I, I just, there's a lot of numbers floating around in my head. I just want to make sure I had the right drive number. Um, they had a bunch of 9840s and 
the, the it, it was like each of those drives was capable. It was something like 30 or 40 megabytes per second, something like that. And so they had like 15 of them behind a single server. And I'm like, you, you, you have, you know, you have 500 megabytes per second of throughput here of, of potential throughput. And, and you're putting it behind a hundred megabit, uh, you know, ethernet connection and you, and you're running all of them simultaneously. Right. So you're dividing a hundred megabit by 15 and you're, and you're giving each of these tape drives 100 divided by 15. This isn't going to work. Right. So, so that's all I'm saying is just understand that this is a problem and, 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 and deal with it, right? There, there are many ways to deal with it. One of them is disk caching, you know, or, or just using disk and deduplication as your primary source of that. That's becomes your on-prem. And then what Joe said of, of then using tape as a way to copy the backups, you know, uh, and, and then hand them and then, you know, and then hand them to a man in a van, right? You just, just literally just acknowledge that this is how tape works and just wishing it away. Isn't going to, that's really the only uh, way to solve this. I, um, so, but I do think, Joe, I do think, and that's where I want to sort of transition at this point. I do want to talk about if, if tape is so, you know, problematic, why is it that it makes a good long-term storage mechanism? That's the part, that's where I really <laughs> want to talk about because we've been bashing it now for a half hour. I want to, I want to say good things about tape. So assuming that I solved the speed problem, why is it that tape is better? Because this, th because this is where tape, I think, has its, like, where, where the perception, it, 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 because people think, when they think about tape, they think about, like, a VCR. And nobody uses VCRs anymore. We use DVDs, and we use a TiVo or a DVR. Uh, or we use the cloud and we use Netflix. Nobody uses VCR anymore. And they think about, and they, they, they think about playing those, those videotapes and they think about the, the weird scraggly stuff you get on the screen, you know, when you play an old videotape and they, 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 they compare that to a, a digital tape. And, and, and I think that, that they get this image that a digital tape is a, an unreliable way to store data for long-term. And, and I think that that is, just not the case. So am I right? <laughs> you are. You know, if you look at a, a modern tape drive, um, they are uh, an amazing uh, collection of technologies. Uh, to, a, to a certain extent, they're far more complicated than a, uh, than a disk drive. Now, the head media interface on a disk drive is the most complex of any interface that we have. But when you look at uh, how the mechanisms have to interact on tape. There's a lot of technology that goes into making a tape drive perform and per perform well. And, and to that end, um, you know, there, there's a lot of science that, uh, uh, that exists both in terms of uh, U.S. companies who are building uh, drives and the media companies in Japan that are building the media. Um, and they've created uh, some phenomenal technology. Uh, and if we look at it, it yes, it's the lowest uh, total cost of ownership of any other storage medium that we have. 
uh, and primarily, uh, you look at a dead data center. Uh, I mean, you can put 50,000 volumes of tape into a data center and all you're going to do is pay for a little air conditioning and heating to keep it at constant temperature and a little in reasonably decent humidity, but you don't have to pay a power bill to keep all those disk drives spinning. The other thing is you don't have a bunch of disk drives failing uh, and leaving you with zero backup. So the only, the only uh, uh, thing to deal with with tape then is long-term storage uh, viability. And tape has historically maintained a, a life expectancy right. of about 30 years. Uh, will it continue at that rate? Um, it's hard to say, but uh, but I think that's still pretty much the uh, the goal is to is to try to keep this as long term storage and to keep it reliable. Uh, and then the only thing you need is tape drives that'll be around for 30 years to be able to read it. <laughs> but why is tape so reliable? The reason it's reliable uh, is that it's um, the, the magnetic uh, formulations are designed to be stable for long periods of time. Uh, if you go back and look at uh, the consumer audio world as an example, right? Your cassette tapes failed within <laughs> within a year. I mean, you left them in your car, you cooked them all day long, and at the end of a year, there wasn't any music left on your tapes. Well. You know, the uh, the environmental requirements for data tape are, you can't leave it in your car, but it's still pretty uh, loose in terms of being able to uh, uh, have a reasonable office environment and still maintain the quality of your recordings. And that comes down to how those particles are formulated and the design uh, care that's taken into making sure that they will survive through the years of lifetime. I don't want to put words in your mouth, Joe, but I'm going to put words in your mouth. You want to know about KUV over KP? I, I do. I do. Because the, the answer that I give is, is as follows. And maybe you're going to tell me that once again, I, I had it wrong. And, that, and that's totally fine because the basics, I think, is still there. So, you know, t talk to us about KUV over KT. And as I understand it, this is simply a formula that talks about the size of the uh, the the, the what it's called the the grain the magnetic grain uh and then also it's about the temperature of the medium that th these two variables uh this is where tape has great values for both of those variables so what is what is kuv over kt good question curtis so what what kuv over kt is is it's called an um, um an accelerated life uh, coefficient uh, it has to deal with the thermal stability of magnetic particles. Uh, the KU term is the anisotropy constant. It has to do with two, two things. First is the shape of the particle, and the, th the second is the, the magnetocrystalline properties of the, uh, the particle. Uh, if we go back 30 years ago, um, eh, not even that long anymore, I guess, um, we, we were dealing with particulate media that was iron-based, and these particles looked like little tiny cigars. Uh, you know, they, they were long, and then they were really thin. And so from a shape point of view, the easy axis was right down the length of the long side of the particle. 
Um, and the hard axis was the, the other two dimensions. What that means is that the particle was easy to magnetize in the easy direction and very difficult to magnetize in the, uh, in the thickness directions. The magnetocrystalline anisotropy uh, part of it applies more to the more modern materials such as barium ferrite. A barium ferrite particle uh, looks like a platelet. And put it simply, if you think of a dime, a dime would look like a platelet. So that it's, it's very thin and it, it has a fairly large diameter to thickness ratio. And so the um, uh, anisotropy uh, of magnetocrystalline anisotropy has to do with how stable is that particle in the presence of magnetization. The easy axis of a, uh, of a platelet is perpendicular to the face of the dime. Uh, so it's in the thin direction as opposed to the, uh, the old particles where the easy axis was down the length, which was the long dimension. Uh, but because of the way that particle interacts uh, in physics, it's stable. So that's KU. Uh, and what they do is they combine the magnetocrystalline anisotropy with the, uh, with the shape anisotropy to end up with a constant, which is KU. V is particle volume. Over the years, every generation, we've dropped the particle volume pretty much in order to get more particles in a given volume. So if you think of a recorded bit on tape, so it's got dimensions of whatever the coating thickness is on the tape. Uh, the length is the distance between your highest frequency transitions. And then the width is however wide your read head is. Not the right head, but the read head. And because the read head is going to image every particle that's down underneath that, and those number of particles is directly proportional to the signal-to-noise ratio. So uh, in order to get high SNR at high linear density, you have to go to small particles and actually also some thinner coatings. So those two elements are what keeps the magnetization stable, the, the numerator of that equation, KU times V. Now what tries to destabilize it is temperature. The, the small k in the denominator is Boltzmann's constant. And then T is temperature. So the higher the temperature, the more destabilizing force there is for, uh, uh, for the lifetime of that recording. The lower the temperature, the longer the, the, uh, the time uh, is for, uh, for stability for that recording. And so every generation, what they try to do is they maximize the KU because the, the V term typically goes down and then try to limit the temperature extremes so that those particles remain stable and give you a 3D year lifetime. So your, your statement is absolutely correct that that's, that's why tape is so good is because it is thermally stable. Because as I understand it, again, if we were to look at things in a microscope, the, the magnetic grains on a typical tape are much larger. Although you are right, they keep getting smaller and they keep getting, putting them closer together. Uh, you know, that, that's just the way we make things bigger in this, in this world. Um, but when you compare the size of a magnetic grain on a, a piece of magnetic tape 
versus the a same a similar magnetic grain on a spinning disc uh that it is you know i don't know if i could should say the phrase order of magnitude but i know it's it's much much bigger than the one that you would find on disc and then the other thing you know it should be obvious but a tape sitting on a shelf its temperature is going to be you know 72 degrees whatever it is you're keeping your data center at and then the as opposed to the inside of a disk drive the 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 operating temperature of that disk drive is not going to be 72 degrees whatever it is so so basically that's why i'm saying a disk has good values for the volume on top and good values for the temperature on bottom which is why tape has a much more um, uh, why a, a, a magnetic bit would be undisturbed for a longer period of time on tape than it would be on disc. How's that for a, a layman's description? It's, pretty, it's actually pretty good there, uh, uh, Curtis. Um, now, now there, there is some, some differences here. Uh, we, we deal with particles. I was, I, I was holding my breath. I was holding my breath. We we deal with particles with regard to uh, tape because they are individual <laughs> particles, whereas with disc we're dealing with grains because they're uh, they're individual magnetic grains that have been plated or sputtered onto a surface, and, and those grains are small, uh, so the, they they fight the problem of V right, and so the the volume of the of the magnetic material is small. Uh, and so what that tends to do is drive this KUV over KT ratio down. And they've done everything they can in order to improve the KU component, but it's driven absolutely by magnetocrystalline anisotropy and not by shape anisotropy. So that means it's, it's sensitive to, to uh, a bunch of other parameters that are really esoteric and, and not worth discussing. But if you look at the ratios for disc and tape, they typically are somewhat different. Um, I don't think I can disclose the numbers that I'm aware of because of the non-disclosure agreements, but there is a difference in KUV over KT for disc versus tape. And it's also, you know, another reason why disc is good for backing things up now and then using it as a staging device to move it off to tape, as well as for the, the data processing center on a daily basis because of random access. You know, tape will never be a random access device. And anybody who tries to turn it into it is really uh, headed into some real big throughput problems. So It's funny you mentioned that, Joe, because on the, on the last podcast, uh, we, um, we, we were talking... Yeah. Um, no, I think it was two podcasts ago. We were talking about LTFS and I made the joke about running like a relational database with LTFS as the, uh, as the medium. What, what do you think of that? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, my, my, my take on all of this is you can drive a nail with a sledgehammer <laughs> or you can drive it with a, uh, with a, with a framing hammer. <laughs> Uh, they'll both probably get you there, but one will probably get you straighter nails than the other one. You know. So, Joe, one question. I know you were talking about the formula. As tape drives get more dense and dense, does that mean the reliability over time goes down? The, again, that gets back to the point of at what point do they have to start compromising the numerator to the equation, right? 
as long as you can keep the anisotropy constant up and uh, sufficiently to keep a reasonable ratio, uh, you're all right. Because that ratio is not mm-hmm. linear. That that ratio turns out to be the exponent to a to a uh, to to a, to, uh, uh, to an equation. So it's not like you're taking two and raising it or two times two versus two times four. It's two squared versus two mm-hmm. to the fourth. And so minor changes in that uh, in that number generate big changes in expected lifetime. Gotcha. Uh, another thing which which we which we haven't talked about where tape is also better than disc is the and, and again I'm going to use the wrong term but I'll just say UBER uh, and let you d- describe what that means. You know, my understanding is that tape is better than disk when it comes to UBER. You're talking about user bit rate? What's in my head is the un, uncorrected bit error rate is what I believe that translates to. I thought you were going to talk about Uber driving. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Uh, basically, my, my, my understanding is that ba- basically, again, putting it in layman terms, that, that, that disk is better at reliably writing ones and zeros to tape you know, or to, to, to a medium, uh, without error than discus that, that, that it's, that it's like the, the UBER, which is measured in like 10 to the, you know, uh, 10 to the negative 19, I think for, for tape. And it's like, it's a couple of orders of magnitude less than that when we talk about disc. Yeah, so there's there's uh, several ways to actually look at this. Now you've got what you might call a soft error rate coming off the device, uh, and then in some cases you have uh, multiple layers of error correction that take place. Uh, you have an inner layer of correction. You may have an outer layer of correction. Then you may have uh, what you might call kind of a super block error correction. And so the 10 to the 19th numbers that you're referring to are the, what you get at the end of the day after you apply all of this error correction. When you look at uh, the soft error rates, so if you were to turn all the error correction off and then you were to go in and measure the error rates for, uh, for disk and tape, they're probably about the same order of magnitude for a soft error rate today. But uh, because of the way we stage data, and we can spread it down tape as well as spreading it across tape, it tends to be much more reliable in that regard. Whereas in disk, it's much more difficult to spread it unless you spread it among multiple devices such as RAID or you spread it among multiple servers and just spread it out all over the entire data center. So... um, yeah, the uh, uh, the error rate problems are so it's more about its ability to correct errors than it is about its ability to not write them in the first place. It's yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, I don't know what uh, uh, actually I do, but I can't say that either. Uh, <laughs> what the soft error rate is of a modern uh, LTO drive, uh, <laughs> 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 but I, I think you'd be surprised at. Uh, and what that number actually would be. But I do know that the UBER that's advertised for LTO and, and, and other tape drives, uh, you know, there still is the, the T10,000. Uh, it's just, I think it's, 
I, I don't think that storage tech is slash Oracle uh, is is actively selling those anymore. Um, but uh, well, there's all there is the IBM drive, uh, the TS eleven twenty, I think. Um, both of them have a higher, at least what's advertised. The UBER is is I believe. 10 to the negative 19th for those. And then for uh, disc, it's more like uh, 14 to 17, depending on which particular disc we're talking about, um, is what I believe is the current number. So that's off the top of my head. I could be off one or two here and there. And a lot of that has to do with the spatial relationships, Curtis, is, uh, you know, in disc, uh, what are you going to do with the data? You can basically spread it out on a track, or you, you could, if you really wanted to, break it up and stick it on multiple tracks. But in order for you to be able to do that, what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to take most likely a, a spin to get back to reposition so you can write the ne- next bit of the data, which case you're losing your throughput. So, you know, to a large extent, you're stuck with writing data um, uh, serially uh, and on the same track. Whereas in disk be- or in tape, because of the fact we have 36 tracks to write it on, we get to spread it out across uh, a good portion of the width of tape, and we can spread it out down the length of tape. So if you think about a serial data stream, uh, let's say it's a, you're, you're writing 100 bytes of, uh, uh, well, let's make it more now, let's say a couple thousand bytes of data. What you may very well do is you take the first byte, write it on track one. You might take the second byte, write it, 200 bits or 200 bytes down tape and maybe down the tape by uh, by 18 channels, all right? So you're getting physical separation between where you're putting data on tape uh, so that if you lose adjacent, you can't lose adjacent uh, bytes of data that way. It's, it's almost impossible. And that's why they get such, such high numbers for data reliability. Which is interesting. In my mind, I've always thought of tape as it's just sequential, right? You're just writing, streaming the data, and it's just kind of like one track. But like you're saying, Joe, it's no, there is multiple parallel channel or tracks inside of tape that you can leverage in order to increase the reliability. That's exactly right. Yeah, And they do that a lot, you know. Uh, yeah, it's actually, it's really interesting that he referred to it as a three-dimensional writing because I've always, I've, I've never, I've never thought of tape in that way either, that I've always thought of disc is more three-dimensional because it has multiple, you know, uh, tracks writing simultaneously. But the way you're saying it, it's that it's actually, it's tape, which is actually three-dimensional and that it's able to write data in a completely different way then we can write on disk and that makes it more reliable. I, I think that's fascinating. Is that, does that sum it up, Joe? That, it, do, it does, uh, Curtis. That's exactly right. Uh, by being able to spread it in two dimensions, uh, you gain a lot of reliability. Um, and then the error correction, obviously, is, is applied down track and cross track uh, with Reed Solomon codes. So, I mean, you, you get some enor- enormous... Uh, uh, boost in reliability, and then in some environments where the data reliability is is paramount, they can add a third level that actually corrects at the block level. So you can actually uh, get some enormous uh, reliability numbers just by by doing that. And that's the advantage they have is that all this data goes into a big buffer in order to figure out how to scramble it, and then after they're done scrambling it, then they write it out to tape. Fascinating. 
It is. Uh, and we don't want to minimize. There was something you said earlier that your biggest problem would be finding a device that can read the, the, you know, the tape. Uh, we don't want to minimize that, but as long as you have that as part of your media management plan, that should not be a problem. Right. It, it, that's, that's correct. Yeah. This comes up a lot. They're like, Oh, I can't even, can't even find a tape drive read, you know, DDS three, you know, as long as it, you make that part of your program, that should, that should not be an issue. Yeah. You know, basically you archive tape, you should be archiving your drives too. But I think there's also some people who also periodically copy forward their data, right? Onto newer tapes, right? Just to make sure they always have that newest version. There are. Yeah. You know, the big challenge you run into is you end up, you know, over time, you're developing a tape library that's very substantial. Mm -hmm. And then when you move to another generation of tape, not only do you have to keep up with today's workload, but now you got to go back and regenerate all those tapes onto a new format. And as time goes on, you know, that library just keeps growing and growing and growing. Yeah. Well, well, I want to, I want to slightly with respect, I'm going to correct something you said, and that is you don't have to migrate it to the newer medium. It's just, there are financial reasons that you might want to do that. Right. So if you, you're, you're going to, like you said, you're, if you're going to keep everything inside your tape library, not everybody can have one of Matt's, uh, uh, Tfinity's, uh, <laughs> libraries with 8 billion tape cartridges in it, you know, so you, you'll, you'll fill up your tape library. And so you're going to have this giant pile of tape that then you're going to have to manage and you're probably going to have to send it to the man in the van and the man in the van is going to charge you a dollar per tape per month. And, and so you're going to have this bill uh, for various reasons, you're going to have this bill that's based on the fact that you've got 50,000 tapes, and then you're going to be given a financial incentive to say, hey, you could keep these 50,000 tapes. They will be fine for the next 30 years. But if you move these 30,000 tapes down to, let's say, 5,000 tapes, your bill is going to be decreased by you know 6x. And, and your cost is going to be a one-time cost. So that you so people, they, they want to migrate and they, often they choose to migrate, but I just, I don't think they have to migrate unless, unless by have to, it's just financially they have to because they get tired of paying that bill. Does that, does that seem fair? I, I agree with that statement. The one thing that's, uh, that's interesting is if you look at the cost of tape uh, in general, uh, let's say you pay X number of dollars for a new generation tape. Uh, a tape that's two generations old will be down around X over four. So you, you've also got the question of to what are you going to back up tape, back up your files to? A new generation where you're going to pay a premium on tape or you're going to back up to a, uh, to a tape that's one generation old or maybe two generations older. Um, and a lot of people, uh, from what I understand, are making that decision, not necessarily to use the, the latest generation tape, but to use the latest generation drive because it's mm-hmm. faster. And so, uh, you know, basically that gives them mm-hmm. the opportunity then to pick speed over capacity. Uh, if you're trying to do, uh, if you're trying to back up 50,000 volumes of tape, um, uh, I don't know what that total cost of ownership model would look like. That'd be a fascinating thing to look at in terms of 
what's the most efficient way to do that? And uh, might be something for you to consider in the future. I'm sure Matt has uh, run those numbers um, <laughs> over there at Spectra. Well, listen, hey, we've been chatting for a while. Is there anything, Prasanna, that we... No, I think we covered it all. The reliability aspects and the useful for deep archive and not as useful for backup. So I think we're good. Yeah. Yeah. In short, uh, you know, tape is really good at a couple of things. It's really good at writing ones and zeros, and it's really good at holding on to ones and zeros, but it's not very good at (laughs) all at going slow. Um, And that's that's why it's not compatible with modern backup and recovery technology and especially incremental backups, which is the thing that we do most often, right? Um, you could make the tape drives happier by doing full backups every day, but um, even that's probably not going to make them happy enough. So, you know, you know, I, ha- Joe and I are, are in, you know, in agreement here that we, that we don't recommend tape as much as we like tape. We don't recommend tape as the primary target for backups. Uh, it is great for archives, for long-term storage, um, and uh, it's both economical and what do you call it? Uh, and it and it and it's a safe way. Uh, and and by the way, you can make a second copy <laughs> for next to nothing, right? Because you know it, it, he alluded to the cost of the media. The, co- the the beautiful thing I think when comparing tape to disc is that the media is separated from the drive that with the disc they're inseparable but because we can separate the media from the drive we can buy thousands of tapes and keep that one very expensive drive and so that's the other reason why tape is just an extremely economical way but it is a safe way and it's much easier to store data for long periods of time on tape than it is to do the same thing on disc um does that sound like a good summary joe I think it's a great summary, uh, Curtis. The uh, one one comment I'd like to leave your uh, your listeners with is moving forward, no matter uh, what you decide to use tape for, be cognizant of its environmental requirements. Every generation, you may find that those might tighten somewhat, uh, and and don't don't throw that uh, that requirement out the window pay attention to it. It's very, very important to uh, archive future. All right. That sounds like good advice from the guy who knows stuff that he's not allowed to tell us. So uh, (laughs) thanks, Joe, for for coming on the podcast. Uh, You're welcome, Curtis. It was a lot of fun. I appreciate you having me. All right. And thanks. Thanks, Persona, for, uh, you know, being that uh, that that foil once again. Yeah. No, thank you, Curtis. And thank you, Joe. I definitely learned a lot. Yeah. About tape. And thank you for answering all the questions I had. And I have a stronger appreciate or a better appreciation now for the complexities of tape. Yeah, this was uh, this was a 10,000 foot uh, intro to tape. But uh, uh, it got you it got you started, got you thinking. And I think. Uh, uh, you know, you guys have been doing some great things for many, many years, and just keep up the, just <laughs> keep up the pace. Uh, the world needs uh, folks like you to uh, get the message out. Oh, I'm touched. With that, uh, we will end this podcast, and I want to thank you to the listeners, and remember to subscribe so that you can restore it all. There was a fire. System isn't worth a spade.
Finally, I needed your backup. You had a chance to fix it, instead, it's all jacked up. See how I'll write on Facebook about you. Don't underestimate the things that I will do. There was a file, but I deleted it. Too bad your backup system isn't worth the space. It'll be completely done Maybe one day it-